This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. In this podcast, we hear about a data revolution to make government and industry more accountable for development goals. Then we look at the struggle for clean energy in Africa with a trip to Ethiopia to examine pitfalls and progress. We also gear you up for the Innovation and Development Hackathon hosted by the UK's Humanitarian Centre. And the former director of field operations for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization pays us a visit to talk about a grassroots education project in one of Kenya's poorest districts and how we can improve food security worldwide. Coming up right after this. Welcome to the SciDevNet podcast, where we travel the globe to connect science and development through news, views, and analysis. And we bring you stories that matter. Our goal is to raise awareness of the issues to help reduce poverty and improve sustainable development. And we kick off our podcast with a big hello from me, Chris Kreese. And a big hello from me, Rosina Mbewe. First up, we travel to the United Nations headquarters in New York City, America, to hear how the increase in data is helping global development. The Millennium Development Goals, which expire in 2015, include aims such as eradicating hunger, improving environmental sustainability, and creating a global partnership for development. But these goals, known as MDGs, have been criticized for missing the data necessary to assess progress. So the UN Development Group, known as UNDP, hosted a three-day dialogue called Data and Accountability for the Post-2015 Development Framework, where international governments, academics and industry members work together to create a new roadmap for capacity building. Participants discussed how to improve monitoring and accountability of development progress with topics such as how to grow infrastructure to collect and share data, how to increase the transparency of information, and how to use this data to make better evidence, best policies. And SciDevNet's editor, Kaz Yanovsky, helped guide a session for the event on the role of intermediaries for making development decisions more transparent. And he met up with Nde Fatou Sese from Sierra Leone. She works for the Millennium Challenge Coordinating Unit as a policy benchmarking coordinator, and she evaluates levels of corruption and issues that affect growth. Kaz asked Nde for her thoughts on the development data revolution. And I think it's time. I think that it's going to be interesting bridging the gap between what the statisticians and researchers are doing and how it's going to be applicable for governments and policymakers in their decision making. I think that's the step that really needs to be thought through. And I think it's important to have government as a part of these conversations to make sure this data revolution, in fact, does revolutionize the people that they intend for it to, which are policymakers. I was very impressed on the first day. You were talking about how data is used in, in your context, in your country, in Sierra Leone. Could you retell that for our audience, please? Well, I think, as anyone can imagine, in a country like Sierra Leone that came out of a, a war, it doesn't necessarily have very strong national statistics offices. And so a lot of the data is from our international data sources that we use to put together information and make decisions. And that process of even using data to make decisions hasn't been the practice of government. But we've been trying to do that. And I, I brought up some issues 
issues around the fact that, you know, especially with the MDGs, it seems as though the kind of accountability mechanisms that are in place means that when we um, are collecting this information, it's for the donors, not necessarily for us to really have conversation with citizens on the performance of government. And I think if that continues, I think that we will not have the impact we want, especially when we're driving towards poverty reduction. And I think that disjoint is a dangerous one, and I think it's one that needs to be addressed seriously. And how do you propose to address it? Uh, that's a really tough question, but I think it comes from actually empowering the National Statistics Office to collect information. It comes about making these MDGs or what are the new goals more understandable to citizens so that they can hold their governments accountable. Because, you know, people are not thinking about what the specific indicators are of the goals. Most citizens in Sierra Leone won't know, but they know that they haven't eaten food today. They know that they want their children to have access to school that is supposedly free, but they still have to pay to buy different things for the teachers. Those are the realities of citizens. And I think until we begin to get the feedback loops coming from the citizens, so the bottom up as opposed to the top-down approach, I don't think that we'll be able to actually make it such that this data and its intention to reduce poverty and have the evidence to show that we're making a difference is making a difference if the voices of the citizens aren't incorporated into that process. And that's a really intriguing challenge, isn't it, is, is getting those um, citizen voices out there. Can you imagine a practical solution to that that you would propose to policymakers in, in your country? Yeah, I would think that the donors would have a, a role to play in this. And I think it's finding opportunities for governments to want to engage the citizens, to get information from the citizens on what their performance is. For instance, in Sierra Leone, we have an open government initiative, which does a annual scorecard on key issues that are of interest to citizens. It's been done for the first time last year, but I think it can be far more robust. And I feel as though that kind of information could be used by government more effectively to inform policies. But we don't because we want to use the indicators that donors are putting out there and what's important to them because that's where the resources are coming from. So it's sort of, at the end of the day, you want to listen to the person who is in fact giving you the resources to make the change that you intend to as opposed to really engaging the citizens and seeing how they feel about the performance of government. There was a curious irony there about the uh, use of statistics. That is that the, the worse your country performs with the normal indicators, the more likely you are to get additional funding and interest. Would you like to say something about that? This has been a conversation, I think, in a lot of countries, similar to Sierra Leone, whereby you see that a lot of donor interests are in areas where, you know, the country may be performing badly. For instance, in our case, that would be child mortality. And this is not to say that these are not important areas of interest. But then you want to see how do you incentivize now progress in that area when you see a lot of resources are going towards a certain um, activity, but you're not necessarily seeing the progress. So I think it's important to think about these incentive structures and see how do we incentivize better performance as opposed to remaining where you are, or in fact, reducing performance and actually doing worse. And I think it's important to understand that dynamic and try to address it and see how we can pay for better performance. 
Do you think this is going to call for a, a revolution in education in Sierra Leone? Well, definitely. I mean, Sierra Leone was once considered to be the Athens of Africa because we have, I believe, the oldest university and what was once the best people were coming from all over the place to go there. But unfortunately, you know, we've seen a decline in that educational system. And I think that there's a significant need for resources poured into our education sector. And because education, I think, is the bedrock of society and progress in society. And this is an area that I think that has not received a lot of focus and it really needs to be revamped. And I think that we need to really focus on it in order to push for a better Sierra Leone. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Nde Fatu Sese of the Millennium Challenge Coordinating Unit and SciDevna editor Kaz Yanofsky. I liked Nde's cut that education is a bedrock of society. It's sad that civil war pushed Sierra Leone's educational system into decline. I know, but on the positive side, if we look at the World Bank development indicators, they show that enrollment in primary school for Sierra Leone has increased by about 60% since the millennium. A good trend. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Nde, too, that progress in any society hinges on the strength of its education. And later in the show, we'll hear about an expanding school project in one of Kenya's poorest regions. But first, how about the fact that government corruption data are collected mainly for international donors rather than for the citizens of Sierra Leone? Oh, yes, citizens need information to hold their government accountable. And there is a national statistics office. But it sounds like most of the data on government performance is coming from international sources and isn't accessible to citizens. And of course, understanding statistics requires a lot of context to make sense of them too. Yes, so education will help citizens better grapple with the data. But Inde also makes a great point that we need clearer communication of the Millennium and Post-2015 Development Goals to make them understandable to the people most affected by them. Agreed. And a government that claims to embrace accountability and transparency can prove it by supporting media to better connect citizens with development policies and progress. Exactly. And speaking of the role for media, SideofNet hosted an event called Making It Count, Big Data, the Open Revolution and Public Engagement in London, 24th February, with the International Development Research Center and UK Collaborative on Development Sciences. And I hear that the meeting cut to the heart of challenges to increase public engagement with research data and provided some solution ideas and policy recommendations too. Yes, thanks, Rosina. And we'll have coverage of that event in our next podcast. SciDev editor Kaz Yanofsky and William Schubert, who is Senior Project Coordinator for Internews' Earth Journalism Network, guided a session for the event called Engaging Southern Media Partners. Ah, okay. Can you give us a little teaser? What's the main thrust? Sure. It's something called geojournalism. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but the idea is that journalists living close to areas experiencing environmental change are well poised to gather news stories to share with policymakers and people farther away who aren't really seeing the changes up close and personal. Another reason to support journalists in the global south. Catch our next podcast for that story. <laughs> Now we leave the grey streets of New York City for the sunny capital of Ethiopia. SciDevNet multimedia producer Lou Delbello traveled to Addis Ababa to find out why the clean energy initiatives are such a struggle. Hi Lou, welcome back. So tell us about this meeting you attended. Hi Chris. My jet lag is worn off. Yay! But I traded it in for a flu. <laughs> Boo. Oh, <Aww>, speedy recovery. <laughs> Thanks. 
So I attended the second high-level meeting of the Africa-EU Energy Partnership, where policymakers, NGOs and energy entrepreneurs from the two continents gathered to discuss the challenges of energy development in Africa. Okay, and a little background here. The African-EU Energy Partnership, called AEEP, was launched in 2007 and aims to improve energy access and sustainability. And if memory serves, I think the first AEEP meeting was held in 2010, when a number of energy targets were laid out to be met by the year 2020. Yes, and um, a major goal is to provide sustainable energy to at least additional 100 million Africans by then, by doubling natural gas and boosting renewable energy production. And by renewable energy production, you mean things like hydropower, solar, wind... And some others like geothermal. Okay. And um, while there are some large-scale projects, like a new hydroelectric dam I'll address in a few minutes, um, there's a clear need for smaller local initiatives of energy production and distribution, especially to serve these rural communities that might be far away from the main electricity grids. So, Lou, how close are they to meeting the targets? Well, let's put it this way. For a population of about 1 billion people in Africa, fewer than half of those people currently have access to electricity. And the AEEP is far from reaching the target of nearly 600 million people by 2020. And the growth for renewable energy sources is off target too, though there has been improvement in the last two years. Okay. I'd like to share an audio clip with a couple of people I've interviewed on location. Great. Tell us who you chatted with. Uh, I spoke with Jakob Vaslander, Head of Climate Change and Energy Division at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands. Ah, that's one of the partner countries. Exactly. And uh, he explained what needs to be improved. Then you let me speak with Gianluca Cescon. He is the country operation one at Devergy. Gianluca is an entrepreneur who builds microgrids to provide small villages with clean electricity in Africa. There was uh, a target set in 2010, which was ambitious, but which people thought was realistic. We can now see that on most elements of the uh, targets, especially on access, probably they will not be reached by 2020. Uh, I think that if we continue as we currently do, we will uh, not really walk the talk, so to say. Progress is going very slow, and the way we're currently structuring our partnership may uh, need some further reflection. So what would you suggest for the future to improve the situation? Well, first of all, I think we uh, need to be sure that also on small-scale energy provision, we need to work more on creating good products which really respond to people's needs, be mindful of uh, the price setting and marketing, and then make sure that there is financial means available so that people have access to finance, microcredit institutions, so that they can purchase these t- forms of energy provision. Currently, they can't. Small-scale energy production has been identified as one of the key ways to boost energy access in Africa. The conventional definition for this is access to at least 50 lumens of light, enough to charge a mobile phone or to power a LED flashlight. However, where policymakers seem to fail at national and international level, entrepreneurs are tapping the potential of local energy markets, investing in energy production and distribution in rural areas. My name is Gianluca Cescon. 
uh, we build microgrids and we try to make our microgrids as smart as possible so that we could actually measure the impact that we were doing, first of all. Uh, a microgrid is a small uh, village-size electricity grid based on solar, in our case, and we developed a smart metering technology so that actually we can receive information about the user uh, in terms of consumption, in terms of uh, expenditure. At the moment we have uh, six villages in uh, Tanzania, another two uh, that operates with our technology in, uh, in Ghana. Despite bureaucratic hurdles, the right energy technologies already exist and talking about innovation for Africa sometimes just means adopting a well-established and cheap technology in a different environment. This, I think, is the first decade in which uh, we were able to use telecommunication, like uh, the mobile phone network. We can use this network in order to transmit data that can be later analyzed by our servers and give uh, not just a feeling of what we do, but really a quantitative research, having data that back up any kind of decision that then actually will be made, not only by the businesses, but also from the policy makers. Many thanks to Jakob Vaslander from the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Gianluca Cescon of Devergy, and SciDevNet correspondent Lou Delbello for those interviews. Thank you, Chris. So Gianluca mentioned the importance of measuring impact, and this was a focus of the second high-level meeting of the Africa-EU Energy Partnership, right? Mm -hmm. Evaluating progress toward the 2020 energy targets. Yes. So let's break down these targets so we can actually see what's really happening. Sure. So a status report was compiled by researchers at the AEEP to take stock of energy progress in Africa from 2010 until now. The targets represent energy access, efficiency, security and renewable energy. And we spoke before about how energy access is below target. Right. Um, the report says it's still achievable, quote, pending policy implementation. Nice air quote there. <laughs> but they didn't really clarify what that means. Okay, well, John Luca made the case for a bottom-up approach to energy production. So starting at the local scale with affordable products to improve access. Exactly. And um, microgrids and local energy production will really help with energy efficiency too, because Africa is experiencing increasing network losses. Mm, so we're seeing some progress on local production with a clear need for expansion. But what about energy security? Mm, security targets have also been missed. And as for renewable energy... Please tell me there's some good news. Uh, sorry to say, all those targets have been missed too, though um, at least there is progress. So I think we need an example here. So how about hydroelectric, since that's the main source of renewable energy? Well, hydroelectric capacity was about 27,000 megawatts per year in 2010. Okay. It increased to about 28,000 megawatts in 2012, mm -hmm. and it's supposed to reach almost 40,000 megawatts per year by 2020. Got it. Using the exact numbers, we're three quarters of the way there, but um, if the rate of increase stays the same, only about 1.5% per year, hydroelectric capacity will reach the 2020 target more than a decade too late. That's a long wait for people without power. Yeah, and uh, it's essentially the same story for wind, solar and other renewables. Okay, tell you what, I'm going to pop up a graph on the SciDev website under the podcast so that we can compare progress for these different renewables. Thanks, Chris. And um, a quick note, 
that these data are from a power project database created by the AEEP and their SOAP analysts will improve the reliability of existing datasets because there's concern that the baseline energy values were under or overestimated. What's the plan then for moving forward aside from getting more accurate data? Well, uh, the conference produced a final document called the ADIS Declaration, but in truth, it lacks data and explanations for what actually needs to be done. Hmm. It calls for increasing efforts to mobilize the necessary resources to achieve the targets and recommends investment in smaller scale energy projects, what they're calling mesoscale, so projects with 5 to 50 megawatts capacity. Taking stock, it sounds like there's been a little progress in renewable energy and local energy production, but there are no explicit plans right now for how to catch up to the 2020 targets to provide sustainable, affordable power to more Africans. Yes, that's in a nutshell. You're listening to a Side of Net podcast for science news and views on global development. One last question, Lou, before you run off. Earlier you mentioned a new hydroelectric dam project. Oh, yes. Well, um, I have an investigative report dropping next month about the benefits and challenges of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. I read about this. It's due to be completed in 2017 with a water volume equivalent to 4,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Can you just visualize that? It's massive. And the dam will supply about 15,000 gigawatt hours of energy per year. That's about four times as much hydroelectric energy as the UK produces per year for this one dam. Yeah, that would be definitely a positive leap for clean energy in Africa, especially for electricity-starved Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. But it has also raised concerns about effects on one of Africa's most important water resources, the Blue Nile. Mm, thanks for the sneak preview, Lou. We'll watch for the full story at www.sidev.net. Up next, we hear about a hackathon to produce innovative solutions to development challenges. <laughs> The Humanitarian Centre in Cambridge is kicking off its third annual innovation and development hackathon on 15th March. And here to tell us more about the Humanitarian Centre and the event is Anne Reddell, their programs manager. The Humanitarian Centre is a registered charity here in Cambridge. We work towards ending global poverty. And what's unique about the way that we do that is we see so many other people from all different kinds of backgrounds working towards ending poverty in NGOs, in companies, in academia, in policy. And we create spaces for these people who don't often get the chance to work together, to come together, to share ideas, to share skills and experiences, and learn from one another, and even catalyze some new kinds of projects or ideas that are different and hopefully have a more effective impact on poverty in developing countries. You have something coming up in March, the hackathon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Ah, the Innovation and Development Hackathon. This is our third year going. Every year we give students and young professionals a chance to apply their skills, again, from all different backgrounds to a real development challenge. And this year we're looking at transparency along the global food supply chain. So we're getting companies and charities who are working on this issue to work with teams over the course of a week to come up with an innovative way that we in the UK 
can access information and make better decisions about what kind of food we buy and understand that what we eat matters and it impacts people all along the food supply chain down to the farmers that are producing it and impacts our livelihoods. Could you give us an example of a project that has come out of one of your hackathons? Sure. So our first hackathon in 2012 was uh, focusing on global health problems. And we had an NGO called Medic Mobile that works um, all across the developing world, mainly in Africa, with rural healthcare workers. Their challenge was they had developed a mobile platform so that rural healthcare workers could access patient records on a mobile phone. But how do they ensure that those healthcare workers have the right patient record for the right patient? Right. So they put this out to a team of uh, a, a business student, a laser physicist, and a geneticist. Wow. Was the team. And over the course of the week, they actually built a prototype of a simple fingerprint scanner that can attach to the most basic mobile phone so the rural healthcare worker can ensure they always have the right patient record, even in communities where there's lots of migration. And now, two years later, they've taken the prototype to um, ready to pilot stage, and they're looking for partners to pilot. Simprints is now their name. Simprints, okay, and, and they're looking to do pilots in India and Africa. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for chatting with us here today, Anne. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Many thanks to Anne Ruddle from the Humanitarian Center in Cambridge. Sounds like a great event. So, Chris, how do people get involved? The hackathon is happening at the Cambridge Science Festival from the 15th to 22nd of March 2014, and you can register at Eventbrite. It's also co-hosted by the University of Cambridge, so they get a good mix of academics ranging from undergrads to postdocs from all sorts of different disciplines working in teams with professionals, so very interesting event. Mm, that's great. And looking at the website, it says it's open to everyone, too. Mm -hmm. I've also been looking up Simprints and can share some more info about it. Ah, great. Please do. So, the students who came up with the Simprints idea for the hackathon have since started the Managing for Development initiative to build a community of researchers tackling global development issues and to further develop Simprints. Oh, that's terrific. And I'm curious to hear more about this device, too. Sure. Simprints is a mobile biometric scanner. It's rugged, low-cost, and can sync wirelessly with mobile phones, so health workers can access patient medical records anytime from any location. And this is great, because providing healthcare to people with no fixed address and no health numbers is a pretty big challenge. Medical records can be linked to a patient's unique fingerprint, so there is no chance of them getting lost, and NGOs can provide the best treatment. The GPS and timestamp can also be used to improve accountability, something we've been talking about mm -hmm. by making sure health workers are visiting patients on time. And what's really astounding to me is that this was the brainchild of students working on the idea for just one week. Fantastic. I'm interested to see what comes out of this year's hackathon. Me too. So what's the next step for Simprints? The students are working with engineers at Kenya's iHelp, known as the unofficial headquarters of Kenya's tech movement, to build prototypes to deploy in the field with their partner, Medic Mobile, in the fall of 2014. Apparently, they've already got a model and software, so we'll keep an eye out for what happens. Thanks, Rosina. And to learn more about the Humanitarian Center, you can check out their website at thehumanitariancenter.org. While we're on the subject of innovation, up next, we hear about a community development group in Kenya who took on the challenge of educating some of the country's poorest children. 
Dr. Andrew McMillan, former director of Field Operations for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, visited the Humanitarian Center in Cambridge this February to talk about food management and education in Africa. He helps fundraise for the Gotmatar Community Development Group in Kenya. Rosina, any idea what Gotmatar means? Well, I don't know, but I'm eager to know. All what right. is it? <laughs> <laughs> it means bare hilltop. The area lies within one of the country's poorest districts, the Bondo District in West mm. Kenya, which, if you're looking at a map, it runs along the shores of Lake Victoria. I see. And you caught up with Andrew to learn more about how this community has been working hard to improve local education. Yes, and I started our chat by asking Andrew how the project of building a new school started for Gotmatar and how it's doing now. Let's have a listen. Yes, this group tried to confront the problems they were facing by having lost a third of adult people through AIDS and having been hit by one drought after another, so their food production was being badly damaged. Grace Ocheng Andike, the young teacher in the area at the time, said that the answer to their problems now was to invest in the next generation, and that investment should be focused on learning, on education, so that people would be able to stand on their own feet with the knowledge and skills they required to support the development of their community. They wanted to build a secondary school, and I was very frightened by the size of the size of the project. I never raised any funds in my life for anything. But they were so determined to go ahead that within four months of the time when we decided that we'd work together on this, they had already built the first block of the school and had 114 people enrolled. And this showed seriousness. And ever since then, in 2006, they've stuck to what they said they'd do stuck to timetables, worked within budget, and have a thriving secondary school, and are now developing an institute of technology to provide practical skills training. That's a complete transformation, and I think it's probably the best possible investment that could ever have been made in the community there. But it didn't come from us as outsiders imposing our ideas, but it came from a community asking us for our assistance to do what they wanted to do for their children. And that, I believe, is the reason for the success. Many thanks to Andrew McMillan for sharing about the Gotmatar Community Development Group, an inspiring example of a grassroots movement to improve education in Africa. To learn more, check out their website at www.gotmatar.org. You know, Rosina, education initiatives can sometimes take a back seat when a population is struggling with immediate crises, such as high mortality rate from AIDS and agricultural collapse from drought. But another perspective that we see here is that focus on strengthening education despite these health and environmental crises can strengthen the resilience of the entire community. Chris, do you think this school has improved resilience in Bondo? I do, because some of the students graduating the school are reportedly staying within the community to apply the skills that they've learned to deal with these other challenges. And some of the students have gone on to university, some into medical training, some are becoming teachers. So Gotmatar is experiencing firsthand how education paves the way to a brighter future for everyone, not just for the students. That's great. Now, Andrew McMillan is helping fundraise for Gotmatar. But his main mission is food security, having been director of the UN Food 
and agriculture organization field operations. That's right. Andrew is a specialist in tropical agriculture and credits vegetable farmers in Trinidad for teaching him a great deal about economics while doing his PhD there at the University of the West Indies. After graduation, he started working in Jamaica's Ministry of Agriculture before being recruited by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, or FAO, as they call it. Yes, and he worked there for about 35 years. That's a long time. <laughs> it is, and in the last few years, he was managing their food security program. And he gave a talk hosted by the Humanitarian Center here in February, and it was called Hasn't the Time Come for Some Brave New Thinking on Food Management, in which he says that famine is akin to famicide because we all have the tools to stop needless suffering from malnutrition, yet we're choosing not to. Well, I'd like to hear more about how we can improve food management. Chris has spoke to Andrew about his vision for how we can redistribute food to eradicate hunger, reduce obesity, improve general nutrition, and better protect our natural resources. Let's listen to what he has to say. No, it's absolutely criminal that when we have enough food produced to meet everybody's needs, but we should still have almost one billion people in the world who are hungry day in and day out. More than half the people in the world are starving, undernourished, or overeating when we have ample food for everybody to eat adequately. And yet we have solutions, but they're simply not being applied. What do you propose are the solutions to tackle hunger? I think we need smart solutions which separate the issue of making sure that everybody has affordable food into two different points. The first is that those who really are hungry and undernourished have the means to buy the food they need to lead a healthy life. And those of us who are fortunate to have higher incomes pay the full price for that food. And in your book here, I'm looking at How to End Hunger in Times of Crises, co-written with Ignacio Treba. You raise this Brazil Zero Hunger program as a model for how to provide financial support to people who are under the poverty line so that they can buy the food that they need. Yeah, it's an excellent model. The Zero Hunger program was launched by President Lula on his first day in office in 2003. He saw that in Brazil, the country exporting food to the rest of the world, were 12 million families who couldn't feed themselves because they hadn't got enough income in a country which was increasingly rich. So the biggest component of his program was to provide cash transfers and modest amount to these families through the women in the family and to meet their food needs but also create a new market for the poorest of farmers in the country to supply their needs. And how successful do you think this program has been? It's been enormously successful by all accounts. The income distribution, that's the amount of money going to the rich and the poor, has shifted in the right direction. Hunger has fallen, and there's been a massive drop in the number of under five-year-old children who are dying through malnutrition. How do you address the major criticism, Andrew, that cash transfers inevitably create dependency in the people receiving them? No, but nothing could be <laughs> more untrue in the situation when you, when you don't know how you're going to feed your children tomorrow. You're not, you're not free. You're more dependent than anybody could be. In Swaziland, there's been a recent study which shows that a large number of the prostitutes in rural areas have taken up 
prostitution because of their lack of access to food. How do you convince policymakers that this kind of socialist redistribution that you seem to be suggesting won't come at the expense of a capitalist market? I, I suppose something which people in rich countries who've seen long-term welfare programs uh, are perhaps right to feel, but when you look at what happens when you put money into the ultra-poor families, then it is actually producing freedom and independence because it enables them to be properly fed, take a part in the labor market. I see it as a fantastic investment, a high-yielding investment in human resources because as long as people are hungry, they're not going to produce anything to contribute to economic development. It couldn't be a better way of investing in growth and wealth creation. So how do we convince people who are perhaps in the top 1% of net worth that they ought to be subsidizing the very poor? I don't see it as a matter of subsidizing. It's a matter of investing in the global good. And all of us are interdependent nowadays because of the processes of globalization. I think we've all got to recognize we do live in a globalized world now. And what one of us or our nations does affects everybody else across this world. And we have a vested interest, and particularly when we think of our children, in seeing a safer world, much greater security, fewer tensions. And one of the big sources of tension now is growing inequality. Very good point, Andrew. Thanks very much for being with us here today. No, it's been great. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Andrew McMillan and Chris Kreese for that chat about improving food management. Thanks, Rosina. The kind of resource distribution he's recommending is a bold solution. It's easy to point to all the challenges of redistribution and feel kind of helpless, right? So I find it refreshing to have someone point out that inequality isn't just a given. There are some very real solutions that we can start implementing today. The Brazil Zero Hunger Program was an interesting example. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what you were discussing focused on policy change at the level of government and industry. That's true. So what can we do as individuals in our everyday lives? Yeah, that's a good question. So Andrew and I chatted a little bit about this, and he says that we can all look to our own behavior and how we're buying food. So are we buying too much and throwing half of it away? We can reduce food demand. Are we making good use of nutritional knowledge? We can reduce rates of obesity. Or are we putting too much stress on the environment by purchasing foods that have high carbon footprints? Because we can use our purchasing power to support more sustainable practices. You know what we need, Chris? What? A consumer database that compares food at the grocery store with data on their carbon footprint, fair trade status, and pesticide contents. The kind of data that can really help us make informed choices. Yes, and actually that is a great challenge for the hackathon given this year's theme of transparency along the global food supply chain. I like that you mentioned too fair trade because Andrew pointed out this cruel irony that the greatest concentration of hunger tends to occur in the rural communities producing our food at a low price for us to eat. So as consumers, we don't have to wait for top-down policy changes. We can protect vulnerable groups in the food chain by purchasing fair trade items starting today. Right, a small increase in the food price that we pay can have a large positive effect on producers and the pressure to provide our food. Exactly. Thanks, Grace. I'm going to read labels much more carefully starting today. And that's our podcast. To comment on this show and other articles, go to our website at www.scidev.net. If you have a story to share, check out our Work With Us page. 
You can also visit the Donate to Us page if you'd like to contribute to SciDev's support of journalists in developing countries. To listen to a podcast whenever you like, you can also find us on SoundCloud. Just search for SciDev. In the meantime, to stay connected, you can follow us on Twitter at SciDevNet and on Facebook. And if you have a question, idea to share, or just want to get involved, you can email us info at SciDev.net. That leaves us to say many thanks to... Dave Fatou Sese, Kazianovsky, Jakob Vaslander, Jean-Luc Echescan, and Lou Bello. And thanks to you, our listeners, for helping us to put science at the heart of global development. Until next time, I'll say bye-bye from me, Rosina Mbewe. And bye from me, Chris Kreese. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Cambridge 105. Cambridge 105.